<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Fill her up. You're listening to the Gas Digital Network. I was going to say, shouldn't there be a studio behind me? <laughs> that was that was like in The Wizard of Oz when he was like, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Well, you know what, guys? You knew the studio didn't look like this. You've seen it before. We've been doing this show for fucking years. But it, this is sexy. This is sexy. I'm going to turn my beautiful face this way um, a little bit because I don't want to block this. Uh, I was, I, I, this is me learning how to do like the weather. It's on the other side of me. It's on the other side of me. I love this. We didn't test this out before, but this has been Mike Harrington's dream was getting the screen screen going. And I was like, it's fine. I never, I never wear green anyway. And then I showed up and rent the runway outfits that were green like three weeks in a row. But it was the holiday season. And that's why. And then to answer... I know Shannon was saying my hair might go out a little bit. You can you can tell a little bit here. It's a little greener, but overall it's more blue. So we're fine. We're fine. We're fine. Got wackos. Hello. How are you? How's everything feeling? Mm, take, take a deep, a deep breath. breath. Oh gosh, I said that in unison with the lady. Didn't even know when it was coming. That's how. Uh, well, I'm vibrating on the same um, uh, level as the universe. Uh, imagine if I just came, like, went to LA and then came back and was like real fucking weird like that. Uh, okay, uh, welcome. I hope your first couple days um, or you know weeks of uh, 2023 have been going well. Uh, I had nine great days in a row, so we're really playing with fire now. You know, that's more days in a row that I had good um, than in the past five years. So we're we're wheeling and dealing. Welcome to the show. Uh, I am a little bit out of it because I had a wild weekend in Las Vegas. Uh, guys, we fucked uh, my other podcast. If you're not familiar, the uh, much more famous one. But, you know, you know, this one just has equally as much heart. Um 
uh, was nominated for an AVN award and uh, Christina Hutchinson and myself and Big Jay Okerson, who was also nominated for SDR show and Ralph Sutton, uh, the co-owner of this very studio I'm sitting in right now. Uh, we all traveled to Las Vegas and hung out amongst the porn stars and what an honor and a privilege it was it was definitely the most it for, for the AVNs to be your first like major nomination is cool as shit. And we had a great time. But I did, you know, basically go on a 30 hour Las Vegas bender. So we back, baby. We back. The porn industry continues to fascinate me. I knew it would. I, I just like people who know how to have a good fucking time. And that is comedians and that is porn stars. Um, yeah. All right. So. My enemy of the state this week, uh, I'm going to have to say, and this is very common for like post-holiday bullshit, people who move out of their homes and leave the dog behind. I know enemy you're <laughs> of the state. I know you're thinking to yourself, Corinne, is that a common occurrence? What monsters are doing this? Like this is actually if you follow 8000 dog rescue accounts and read them alone in your bed for a cathartic cry before you fall asleep every night like I do, uh, you would know that this is actually a super common occurrence. Uh, people's living situations change or they're moving maybe to uh, another rental that does not allow dogs. And they will just leave rather than bring the dog to a rescue or rehome the dog to a family friend or something. They will literally just leave the dog on the property and then, you know, best case scenario, someone notices that the dog's been left on the property and, and goes and gets it. Uh, worst case scenario is it dies. Worst case scenario, it dies alone in the house it used to share with, with its family. Okay? So don't do that. You know, I... I highly disagree with ever giving up an animal because to me, it's a member of your family. Uh, but the same way, you know, we put old people in senior citizen homes. I mean, if you need to, if the medical bills or something get too much, put it in a place where it's going to be taken care of and visit it if you can. You know, that's the that's what I'm trying to build. I'm trying to build my senior rescue so that if an animal becomes too difficult to care for because of the medicine or its physical situation, that it will be rehomed in a place where it will have 24-7 um, veterinarian care. And uh, the original family is still able to visit it so the dog doesn't get sad in its old age. That's that's what I'm trying. That I, I need to keep podcasting until I have enough money to fund that. And then maybe, maybe we'll end the nightmare, you know? Um, all right. Uh, let's get into the stories. It has been a couple crazy weeks of news and it seems to have settled a bit this week. Um, I actually have like a numerous football stories. I guess this is who I am now leading into the Super Bowl. I don't know. I'm working at Perfectly Centered a lot uh, these next couple weeks because uh, John Campanelli is in Los Angeles. So let's fucking do it. Let me learn about sports. This is my new thing. I'm going to learn about sports. Mike loves that. <laughs> Mike is in his UFC shirt is just fucking so jazzed about that. What's the sport that you want me to know more about? Is it UFC? Yeah, obviously. Okay. Well, that's that, that's what I'm most uh, that's what I'm most likely to be into. I was I for years ago, and I don't like to even admit this publicly, but I was dating a 
dating a man who liked boxing. And I would never get into something just because a guy I liked liked it. But he would put it on. And then he tricked me by also getting me Taco Bell so that I would sit in front of the TV. Um, And then I ended up really liking boxing. So I feel like if I like boxing, I'm close to UFC. Although UFC feels a little like it just like it just feels a little more violent, even though maybe it's not because I know boxers get really bad injuries, too. The way I did this with uh, with my ex, uh, very similar, right? Right down to Taco Bell or other fatty snacks. Um, okay, I don't, was, I, don't know, I don't know that we need to call them fatty snacks, but okay. During the Ronda Rousey era. Oh, you tricked her with a woman. Exactly, right? <laughs> and it's like if you're if now, if it's a woman telling these same stories that get me hyped and get me like I'm watching whether it's a man or a woman beating the crap out of that man or woman, right? My dislike of sports has nothing to do with um, sex or gender, which you know is rare for me. It just has to do with I don't like the sport sports. I don't like the things that happen. It doesn't feel important to me. They're literally keeping score. Yeah, I I understand, but it's like it's like we're playing a it, it's a playing a game. Like I'm not impressed by like physical physicality. That doesn't impress me. And I know it is extremely hard and I know it takes willpower and training and all those things I respect theoretically, but I go, why don't you just put that into like creating a cure for cancer? And that and that and I'm same things goes to myself because I mean I'm creating art. But then I did read this thing in a book recently when I was still tackling my existential crisis, and it has to do with like kind of nothing nothing matters until you're experiencing grief. Like art kind of doesn't matter until you're experiencing like deep grief, and then that that's the only thing that matters. And that like little blip right there made me feel better. And I can appreciate that many men think of sports and women too, but it's more of a male thing. I think of sports as like as an art form and I can appreciate it in that way. It just doesn't do anything for me. Like even in high school or whatever, when we were like doing competitive twirling and stuff, I was just twirling cause I liked twirling. I didn't care what my score was or if I dropped it. I just fucking liked doing it. And so, you know, especially for someone who's like as type A as me, it's, I need something that does not getting scored or ranked or competing against my colleagues. That's all. I don't know. There's, there's something about Misha Tate versus Holly Holm is the one I always point people to. Right, that's two women. Can you play part of it for uh, me, or not allowed? I think I probably play the end, but I mean, it's it's literally <clears throat> it's it's a twenty five minute drama that's better than anything the Academy has ever given Best Picture to. Wow, you went West Side Story on this. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. Okay, <laughs> I like drama. Catch me outside. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is this is. I actually wrote like a test piece for uh, for a couple different publications, like when I was before I got this job. Uh, just about like the story that led up to this fight and like the 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 amount of losses and trial tribulations, whatever. I didn't Everything... know you were a journalist, Michael. Yeah, I mean that's literally my. I'm an MMA journalist. That's that's your job. I mean, there's a lot of faux journalists walking around the comedy space. Yeah, <laughs> I'm one of them. <laughs> I got press presses to prove it, baby. <laughs> Okay, cool. I would like to read that. I'm I'm curious. I am always on the side of like, please convince me why this is. And I love that. I love what I love about sports. I do love how passionate people are about it because I love. I just admire passion in general. But like, I don't have to share your passion. Um, that's all I'm saying. But I do. I do love a in person basketball game. I do love to fucking yell. You suck at MSG. Nothing feels more cathartic than that. That was great. Um, but also, you know, snacks. 
You know, when you can get the snacks live from the concession stand, when you can walk and get a snack and this TV is still playing, that really does it for me. It's kind of sexual almost. All right. Well, we'll think about that. Okay. So, um, yes, girl. So, um, obviously, last week we talked about Damar Hamlin. He is doing so much better. Not only has his uh, charity raised, I mean, last time I checked, it was $7 million. I'm sure it's probably even more than that now. And it was initially a toy drive, but he's they're not going to allocate funds in different ways, um, which is really cool because, you know, to- toys are important if you don't have them. But I don't know that anyone, you know, needs seven million dollars worth of toys handed out. Uh, but, you know, that's I I had toys, so I can't really speak to that. Um, but I did mention last week that it annoyed me about people saying immediately when he, uh, you know, faint passed out that it had to do with like the vaccine somehow and then people started talking about the jab and then someone on fucking youtube commented uh corinne's always like anti-censorship and says that words don't mean you should be able to use whatever word you want and then she got fucking mad about the jab yeah i'm not mad about like the word the jab to me it's uh to me the jab is a hint that you're a moron that's what that's what i meant there's nothing wrong with the word in and of itself any it's like a it's like some kind of like just this the same way that liberals have stupid dumb fucking catchphrases like girl boss or the stupid shit that they say conservatives say stupid shit too okay this is a show about calling both sides stupid all right Conser- I, I don't really i don't really think conservatives are more stupid than liberals i think they're both equally stupid and that's the fucking point of the show um and i'm also stupid that's another point of the show so uh, this is from NPR, how Damar Hamlin's collapse fueled anti-vaccine conspiracy theories. Last week, more than 23 million people tuned in to watch the Buffalo Bills play the Cincinnati Bengals and instead became witness to a terrifying life or death emergency as safety Damar Hamlin collapsed suddenly on the field. His teammates knelt in prayer while medical staff fought for his life. According to doctors, Hamlin is doing well and was released from a hospital in Cincinnati and returned to Buffalo on Monday, where he is now in stable condition. But on the internet, anti-vaccine activists filled in the silence with unfounded theories that Hamlin's collapse was brought on by COVID vaccines. The term is a data void, said Kalina Koltai, a misinformation and social media researcher who until very recently worked for Twitter. She too was watching the game and immediately braced herself for incoming anti-vaccine narratives. We've seen this trope applied over and over again, not just to athletes, but any sort of celebrity malady, said Coltai. The misleading claims were quickly picked up by the far right, most notably with a post from activist Charlie Kirk, who wrote in a tweet, this is a tragic and all too familiar sight right now. Athletes dropping suddenly. Um, And this is also just like, Anyone who's like ever been a part of sports and I'm talking like middle school sports to professional level sports knows it's actually quite common for people to just uh, children or teens, young people to just drop down because of some like unknown heart thing. I remember this story of a woman who like she was playing some kind of like high school sports and her body was sore. And she so before bed, she smothered herself in Bengay and then she died in her sleep because apparently if you cover every space of your skin in Bengay, it suffocates you. Okay, that's just one of many stories that keep me up at night. So be careful about Bengay. 
But Ben Gay does fucking burn so good. I love Ben Gay. All right. The next day, Fox News host Tucker Carlson followed up with a segment echoing the misleading claim that young athletes are collapsing at alarming race rates since COVID vaccines became widely available. While Carlson and Kirk are among the most well-known figures to promote misleading claims about Hamlin's cardiac arrest, a host of less prominent anti-vaccine influencers, many newly returned uh, newly returned to Twitter, mobilized alongside them. In the months since billionaire investor Elon Musk bought Twitter, in October, the company has fired content moderators, stopped enforcing its policy on misleading information about COVID-19, and implemented a general amnesty of tens of thousands of accounts that had previously been banned or suspended for breaking the site's rules. But even before Musk's takeover of Twitter, Koltai says the easily veiled language of vaccine disinformation often evaded moderators' attempts to contain it. She says Kirk's tweet is a good example. You're not violating any content moderation policy, but you are implying it, she says, which is why the larger widespread dissemination of anti-vax ideology has been so dangerous. The impacts of vaccine-related mis- and disinformation don't hit all at once, Koltai explains. They grow over time with repeated exposure. Hamlin's collapse happened to follow a recent period of heightened activity from anti-vaccine influencers. In late November, a documentary-style film called Died Suddenly, oh, I gotta read that, premiered full of, not, I watched that, not read it, uh, premiered full of debunked claims about supposedly vaccinated people dying from blood clots. I just love the use of supposedly vaccinated. Um, anti-vaccine activists have several advantages over more credible sources. And also... If you really if you really want to get caught fucking me to start a fight with you, as I said, I've said many times on the show before, I truly don't care if you got the vaccine or you didn't. I wanted to get it. That was a choice I made for me. Um, not going to get I got one booster and then I'm not putting anything else in my body. COVID related. We're, we're done with that. Uh, haven't even thought about wearing a mask in months. That being said, a lot of these anti-vaxxers are also people who like sprinkle water on, on themselves that they think is like blessed by God. So we're all being ridiculous. Uh, they have a huge supply of existing narratives to fold current events into. In addition, Coltai says spreaders of misinformation have speed on their side. A week after Hamlin's collapse, his doctors have yet to determine exactly why his heart stopped. You can immediately start making this link between vaccines, and it won't be until uh, days, if not weeks later, that you're able to have scientific proof. Like, this is because of XYZ, not because of the vaccine, says Coltai. By the time medical professionals and journalists catch up, the damaging messages have already made the rounds. Long before the COVID pandemic supercharged anti-vax narratives, Coltai says the practical details of moderating online forums where people share articles or personal fears about vaccine injury were always touchy, but those examples rarely had the reach of a primetime sporting event. About a month before Hamlin's collapse, during the Soccer World Cup, vaccine conspiracies began to swirl around the sudden death of sports journalist Grant Wall, who was covering the tournament in Qatar. His wife of 21 years, uh, epidemiologist and infectious disease physician Celine Gounder, yeah, you got yourself a good chick, had grown accustomed to receiving threats and ugly messages for years because of her work, which included advising the Biden administration on COVID-19. But she quickly began to face an onslaught of even more personalized attacks as news of her husband's death spread. Can you imagine grieving your husband's death and then dealing with you fucking morons on the Internet? This is one of a few hundred, actually, as well as voicemail messages and other kinds of harassing messages. But this particular email blamed 
me for having killed my husband because he got COVID vaccinations, Gounder told NPR's Juana Summers in an interview on All Things Considered. Also, oh, oh, uh, I doesn't doesn't her husband have his own free will? Will do you think he, she fucking taped him down to the bed, tied him to the to the bed, and fucking injected the vaccine? Like, what are we talking about? What are we talking about right now? We all have our make our own choices in this life, um, unless you're a child, I guess, or some kind of prisoner of war. Um, in her grief, she put out a written statement about Wall's death, sat for media interviews, and eventually published the results of her husband's autopsy. All I would have sent it out with the Christmas cards, all in the hopes of ending the speculation of strangers. But unfortunately, the Damar Hamlin incident really did kick things back up, Gounder says. She says she understands the deep human impulse to want answers in the face of a sudden shocking event, but says spreaders of disinformation use an established playbook to exploit the tragedies of families like hers. Disinformation is a business model. Make no mistake about it. And these are people who are trying to make money, who are trying to gain social media followers. That's a big one. Or subscribers on Substack or some kind of social status or power. And that really is just re-traumatizing. Not just me and my family, but others who have been victims of this kind of behavior, says Gounder. While Hamlin's collapse and Wall's death played out in U.S. social media circles, anti-vaccine falsehoods have been spreading rapidly around the world, said Peter Hotez, a pediatrician and vaccine scientist at Baylor College of Medicine. The U.S. is good at exporting its culture. We export music. We export our movies. Now exporting this, says Hotez. Uh, He's watching American rhetoric around, quote, medical freedom take hold in Canada, Western Europe and beyond. Uh, and beyond. Uh, you're starting to see the anti-vaccine lobby attack the introduction of new malaria vaccines on the African continent using the same kind of phony baloney arguments. I haven't heard phony baloney in way too long, so thank you for that. Uh, Hotez is particularly concerned with the evolution of anti-vax narratives once used to sell books and nutritional supplements, becoming part of a broader political platform that attracts far-right groups like the Proud Boys and portrays scientists like himself as enemies of the state. Uh, he reserves some... <laughs> of the state. Yes. He reserves some criticism for his own biomedical community's insistence on not doing more to confront vaccine conspiracy conspiracism head on in the early 2000s. The Department of Health Human Services for years would keep saying to me, Peter, we're not going to talk about this because you'll give it oxygen, says Hotez. He believes that unofficial policy had an enabling effect and helped lead to our current moment when virtually any visible uh, health scare or death can be weaponized by anti-vax activists. This is an entire anti-science political ecosystem now, and it's very frightening and very destructive. So, well, I do think, um, you know, uh, this anti-vax rhetoric is overall kind of stupid and and, and stuff. I will say, you know, I will also ask the question, why as a country are we in this place? And it's because we have a fucking distrust for our government, um, because we don't think that our politicians have our best interests um, at the forefront. And I also agree with all those things. Like, do I trust distrust politicians? Yes. Do I think that uh, they are certainly more interested in uh, fame, power and money than they are in helping the people that they represent? Yes. Uh, But do I also think that everyone needs to chill out with their faux medical knowledge? Also that. Also that. Because you don't the, the, the tweets that I was reading after Damar Hamlin passed out were I mean, just so stupid. 
Just the, the it, it actually made me appreciate doctors more. That's how stupid the tweets I was reading were. Um, all right. Hey, responsible wackos over the age of 21 living in states where Delta 8 is legal. That's probably something you'll have to look up on the internet. Do you want to get high? Do you want to get really high? Do you want to just absolutely get so fucking high that you forget that it's even January 2023 and you're on a spaceship to wherever the fuck things are better? Well, then now's the time to go to YoDelta.com where you can stock up on high quality lab tested Delta 8. You know the story. You know about this product. We talk about it every week. That's what an important part of the gas digital culture it is. Everyone's whacked out of their minds here at Gas Digital on Delta 8. They can whack out of their minds on vapes or gummies. All that's important is that you're not in the now, okay? So if you're over the age of 21 and living in the majority of states where this is legal, you're going to go to YoDelta.com and stock up on Delta 8. Delta 8 is found in hemp and can be legally shipped to various states and get you high. At YoDelta.com, you can find a mix of gummies and vapes for all your getting stoned needs. And Delta 8 works because we see people whacked out of their minds all the time. And, of course, these products should be taken responsibly. So once more, that is YoDelta.com, the official Delta 8 sponsor of the Gas Digital Network. And if you use promo code gas, you're going to get 25% off. Once more, that is code gas for 25% off. Yo Delta, home of the Delta 8. That will get you super high. Now, back to the show. Next, we move on to... (laughs) So this is the dumbest article I saw this week, but I just like couldn't stop myself from... um, from choosing it god it's probably this probably stopped working that's how fake um this article is oh no this is just the time this this is just the time in the show when my computer stops which only happens in gas digital um but (laughs) it's titled is it racist to like big butts and i saw this and it spoke to me and it resonated with me um and can you pull it up on this screen so i can read it off there Thank you. Um, All right. And this is not this is not from a reputable source. Okay, it's from some fucking online thing called Unheard, U-N-H-E-R-D. But it was circulating semi heavily um, in the Twitter space. So I thought it was fine to include. Uh, It says, is it racist to like big butts? The derriere discourse guilt trips white women. And it's by Kat Rosenfield. Uh, The human butt has long been the object of all manner of obsessions. We worry over it, its size, its shape, whether or not it has cellulite on it, how it looks in a pair of jeans. But now a new source of concern emerges. And I don't know where because this is the first time I'm hearing about it. The alarming possibility that one's butt or at least one's relationship to butts generally is racist. Now, the only theory that I have on female body parts, and I've talked about this on Guys We Fucked over the years, is that if you like, you men who like big tits over big butts tend to be more immature. And I will, that is a hill I'm willing to die on. Okay, back to the story. <laughs> tits are immature, asses are for mature people. <laughs> Um, For this, we may thank the existence of Butts, a backstory, a new book by journalist Heather Radke. To be fair, 
it surely is not Radke's intention to uh, in what word is that inculcate insulcate fuck every fucking week with this shit uh, <laughs> we really need to start the without a country journal um, uh, or dictionary this week in un- uncle Kate fuck what is the inculcate inculcate the fuck is that to fix beliefs or ideas in someone's mind, especially by repeating them often. Ooh, that's a good one to, to let. I'm going to I'm going to remember that one. Can you write that down for real? Because I'm actually going to start a dictionary this year and then go over all the and see if I remember any of the words. To be fair, uh, surely <laughs> uh, it. Uh, to be fair, it surely is not Radke's intention to inculcate racial anxiety in her reader, but feels like a passion project, deeply researched and fun to read, offering a deep dive into the history and culture of the human rear end. From the Venus Kalibigi, uh, that's not it's like a title, so I don't need to know that, from whose name the word Kalibigin uh, Kalibigin is derived, to Buns of Steel, to Sir Mixalot's seminal rap celebrating all things gluteal. It is a topic ripe for well-rounded analysis, so to speak. But having been written... Come on. What? Ripe for well-rounded analysis? Come on. Yeah, this is a ridiculous article. (laughs) That's why I chose it, Michael. I just, I don't like, I I feel like I'm... I'm It's it's like Carrie Bradshaw wrote it. It's ridiculous. I understand (laughs) this. But then, uh, but then also even more ridiculous to write r- ripe for well-rounded analysis, and then includes wor- include words that I don't know how to pronounce, never heard before. That you know have to write down and go home and research later. Um, it is a topic ripe for well-rounded analysis, so to speak. But having been written in the very particular milieu of 2020s America, but unfortunately falls victim to the contemporary vogue for viewing all matters of culture through a racial lens. And that's actually um, what I found interesting about this article. The Because we are in a time um, when we are viewing everything through like a... A gender lens, a, a racial lens, um, sometimes a financial lens, things like that. Uh, and I wonder if it's doing us a disservice. Um, I definitely think it's separating us more as a, as, as a culture or as a people. Um, but it needs to be pointed out nonetheless. Uh, the result is a work that not only flattens the butt uh, figuratively, but makes the book feel ultimately less like an anthrop anthropologist. I'm sorry, I cannot read today. Anthropological study and more like an entry into the crowded genre of works which serve to stoke the white liberal guilt of the NPR tote bag set. The concept of cultural appropriation has always struck me as both fundamentally misguided and historically illiterate, arising from a studied incuriosity about both the inherent contagiousness of culture and the mimetic nature of human beings. But when it comes to the remixing of things such as textiles, hairdos, or fashion trends across cultures, the appropriation complaints seem at least understandable, if not persuasive. There's a conscious element there, a choice to take what looked interesting on someone else and adorn your own body in the same way. Here, though, the appropriatum item is literally a body part, the size and shape of which we rather notoriously have no control over. Well, I mean, you kind of do with the kinds of surgeries that we have now. And yet Radke employs more or less the same argument to stigmatize the appropriation of butts as is often made about dreadlocks or bindies. The book is uh, insistent on this front. Butts are a black thing and liking them is a black male thing. And the appreciation of butts by non-black folks. Well, I mean, just to say it's only a quote black thing is 
I mean, that's just like, what about Latino people? What? Um, uh, Selena, hello. And the appreciation of butts by non-black folks represents a moral error. Cultural theft or stolen valor or some potent mix of the two. Among the scholars and experts quoted by Radke on this front is one who asserts that the contemporary appreciation of butts by the wider male population is coming from black male desire. Straight up, point blank, it's only through black males and their gaze that white men are starting to take notice. To to paraphrase a popular meme, fellas, is it racist to like butts? I missed that one, I guess. Did you see that meme? No, it's uh, fellas, is it gay to blank? Oh. Fellas, is it gay to bang oh, so chicks? She, oh, so she's saying, oh, she's doing a play on it. I see, I see. Yeah, it's very witty. Meme culture. That's why we need Shane here for meme culture. Um, perhaps needless to say, a wealth of cultural artifacts from the aforementioned Venus sculpture to the works of Peter Paul Rubens to certain show tunes of the 70s belie the notion that white guys were oblivious to the existence of butts until black men made it cool to notice them. But the cultural legacy of the butt is undeniably entangled with the legacy of racism and eugenics, including a sordid and repellent history wherein certain anthropologists of the white male variety both fetishized the physiques of black women with ample backsides and conflated their peculiarities with savagery and promiscuity. Also, who writes artifacts like that? Um... I don't know. Is it A-R-T-E-F-A-C-T-S? a I I know. I thought it was maybe a a, a, a different like a, a, a you know like when there's slightly uh, different spellings, but it means something slightly different. I don't know the answer to that. Let's see. Or is it just like someone who fucking spells things in annoying manner? Yeah, it's just a way to uh, artifact is what came up when I pushed it. Yeah, it's just a, it's just another way. It's like. How you can artifacts? I hate her. But I didn't. I didn't choose the article because we all wanted to love this lady. I I hate her. These are the kind of people who get attention on the internet, and then you read the article, and then you go, "Why am I giving these annoying people attention?" And I go, "I don't know. I don't know what the answer is there, Michael." All right, back to this article. Um, Most prominent in. Uh, in this history is the case of Sarah Bartman, to whom Radke devotes an entire chapter plus countless references. Now I got to read this book too. Bartman was a member of the Koeko uh, tribe in South Africa, who in the early 1800s was coerced into traveling uh, to Europe and participating in a freak show style exhibition in which onlookers gawked at and sometimes poked or grabbed her buttocks. If Bartman's feelings about this remain Somewhat mysterious, the records of the time are ambiguous as to how voluntary her participation was. The motivations of the men who trafficked her are less so. Anthropologists of the time were obsessed with categorizing humans into a racial hierarchy. Oh, also, she spells categorizing like that. She might be like British or Canadian or something. I think maybe that's the issue. Um, it w- just wasn't uh, it wasn't just Bartman's butt that fascinated them, uh, but her entire body, including the shape of her skull and her elongated labia. Hell yeah, shout out, which were held up <laughs> as evidence that she and hence all black women were a lower order of human being. Certainly, it is impossible to do justice to the history of butts without devoting ample space to Bartman. But it's one thing to give due scrutiny to the fact that some 19th century uh, anthropologists indulged in the repugnant racial stereotyping of black women's bodies and body parts. It's another to replicate it ourselves or to assume that other people are. 
Radke does assume, though, repeatedly, persistently, and sometimes in spite of alternative theories or evidence to the contrary. This includes advancing the argument that bustles, the the Victorian-era fashion that trended more than 50 years after Sarah Bartman's death, were inspired by her singular figure, and that white women were coyly, perhaps even consciously, appropriating Bartman's silhouette in an act of racist uh, fetish fetishization. Notably, Radke is the first to acknowledge the obvious flaw in her argument. There was also a question of why a late 19th century woman would have wanted to look like Sarah Bartman, whose silhouette had been used as the quintessential example of African as subhuman, she writes. Why indeed? But Radke answers this question with some crude stereotyping of her own. White culture and fashion have both proved relentlessly adept at cherry picking throughout the centuries, Uh, finding a way to poach the parts of other people's culture, histories, and bodies that suit them and leave behind the rest. I mean, that's a lot. There's a lot of cherry picking in a lot of areas of life, including politics and religion. Um, Why would 19th century women have aspired to the silhouette of a sexually promiscuous savage? Uh, Because they were a bunch of Karens. That's why. And here, the self-loathing contemporary white woman reader is surely nodding along. By the time Butts comes around to analyzing the contemporary derriere discourse, its conclusions are all but foregone. The political is not just personal, but anatomical. The book calls multiple women, including Jennifer Lopez, Kim Kardashian, and Miley Cyrus, to account for their appropriation of butts. Miley Cyrus doesn't have a big butt. That doesn't even make sense, which are understood to belong. Yeah, she's got a nice butt. She has a nice butt, but she has a, it's a very, if we're, if we're talking racially, it's a very white butt. Yeah, but just because she's celebrated for her butt? She's got to apologize. But but also, apologize. I mean, she's also flat chested. And that, so if she wanted to succeed, she had to celebrate the butt or the breasts. And so she got to go butt because she didn't want to get implants. Everyone knows that. I, look, I'm not arguing with, with I love you. Miley Cyrus. Okay. I love all the people that sit there. I love Kim Kardashian and I love Jennifer <laughs> Lopez. And it's not just because of their butts, okay? They were flat butted. I would also appreciate them. That makes one of us. Uh, all right. All right. <laughs> All right. Put this fucking article back on the screen, Michael. Um, All right. Uh, To account for their appropriation of butts, which are understood to belong metaphorically, if not literally, to black women. The most scathing critique is directed at the then 21-year-old Cyrus, who's twerking at the VMAs, is described as adopting and exploiting a form of dance that had long been popular in poor and working-class black communities and simultaneously playing into the stereotype of the hypersexual black woman. I mean, that is technically, if we want to really scrutinize uh, white people and really get into the depth of appropriation, that is not inaccurate. On this show years ago, I think actually when Joe was still on the show, we did look up the origins of twerking in a similar story. And as I had hypothesized, it originated in like New Orleans-style like dancing that they would do in um, parades. So yes, technically you are appropriating black culture, um, you know, through if you are, if you are twerking, I I guess. But I mean, I feel like dance is something that, you know, is shared. I I don't know. All right. Back to this. Um, The mainstreaming uh, of butts as a thing to be admired then is the ultimate act of Columbusing. Love the usage there. The butt had always been there, even if white people failed to notice for decades. (laughs) What's this thing I'm sitting on? There is also the curious wrinkle in Radke's section on the history of twerking, which credits its popularization to a male drag queen named Big Frida. 
I, I like how they're acting like this is not like one of the most popular drag queens of all time. This male drag queen named Big Frida. And it's also weird to point out that it's a male drag queen. I think drag queens, we assume are male unless stated otherwise. Uh, the implicit suggestion is that this movement style is less offensive when performed by a man dressed as a woman than by a white woman with a tiny butt. Butts doesn't claim to be a story with a moral, but one nevertheless emerges. <laughs> everyone may have a butt, but butts are not for everyone. And it is worth noting that however much baggage it assigns the white men who like butts, its implications are even more fraught for the white women to whom the butts are attached. One gets the sense that non-black women are not supposed to have big butts, that those who do not, uh, that those who do have accomplished something Something unnatural, if not outright suspicious. Guys, as someone with a big butt, my butt's gotten smaller because I lost like a lot of weight. But uh, as someone with a big ass, I can tell you there's nothing suspicious about it. It's just a lot of seamless. <laughs> that's that's the mystery is solved. So you can go go park uh, <laughs> go park the mystery mobile because the answer is a lot of seamless. Um, all right, back to the article. Uh, Mm, 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 mm. let's see uh and if you insist on having a butt and really do you have to then you must under no circumstances be proud of it or accept positive attention for it or heaven forfend make it part of your brand this article is directly to me ironically the author of this book is herself a white woman with a large backside that's what i was thinking the whole time i was like heather radke is definitely a white chick a fact of which she periodically reminds the reader and yet but thoroughly subsumes its subject matter into the cultural appropriation discourse in a way that implicitly um, impugns all the non-black women who look at least from behind a hell of a lot more like Nicki Minaj than Kate Moss women who perhaps hoped that their own big butts might be counted among those Sir Mix-a-Lot cannot lie about liking a lot of references to Sir Mix-a-Lot in here it is worth noting too that women hung out to dry by this argument are the same ones who other progressive identitarian rhetoric almost invariably fails to account for the more it indulges in the archetype uh, of the assless, willowy white woman, the more butts excludes from its imagination the poor and working class whose butts, along with everything else, tend to be bigger. It fails to account, too, for those from ethnic backgrounds where a bigger butt or, as one of my Jewish great-grandmothers might have said, a nice round tukus is the norm. All told, butts offers an interesting, if somewhat uh, monomaniacal look back at the cultural history of the derriere. But as for how to view our backsides moving forward, especially if you happen to be a woman in possession of a big butt yourself, the book finds itself at something of a loss. Those in search of body positivity will not find it here. Radke is firm on this front that white women who embrace their big butts are guilty of what Toni Morrison called playing in the dark, dabbling thoughtlessly with a culture, an aesthetic, a physique that doesn't really belong to them. The best these women can hope for, it seems, is to look at their bodies the way Radke does in the final pages with a sort of resigned acceptance. Her butt, she says, is just a fact. On the one hand, 
This is better than explicitly instructing women to feel ashamed of their bodies, although implicitly one gets the sense that shame is preferable to the confident twerking alternative. But after some 200 pages of narrative about the political, sexual, cultural, historical baggage with which, with which the butt is laden, it feels a bit empty, a bit like a cop-out. It could even be said, not by me, but by someone, that butts... Wait for it. <laughs> that butts has a hole in it. But um, hail Satan! <laughs> yes, what an article! I loved it. That was fun. That was fun. Mike's eyes right now are saying, "I hate you." <laughs> what an article! The fact that someone took time to write the book butts and that someone then took time to write that article is astounds me. It astounds me. The amount of time that we spend talking, thinking, monetizing women's bodies is exhausting. It's exhausting, everybody. All righty then. I really enjoyed that. That was that was a roller coaster. I had fun on that. I feel like I just came back from Six Flags Great Adventure. All right. Now we're going to move on to something a little more serious. The Butts was a, pal- a palate cleanser for this article about a six-year-old shooter, which also could be the title of a very cute children's book. This is from NPR. Welcome to it's not Cutie Corner yet. Yay! That's funny, though. There is there is two cutie corners this week. I went hard on animal stuff this week. Ooh, I just saw the word cute in the notes and I, I went for it. That's my bad. No, it's f- I mean, wait, you saw oh a cute chill, a, a cute picture book title I wrote in the notes. Sometimes I I write little pith, pithy things to say. Um okay, yes, 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 yes. I want I I, for, I forgot about this organization I wanted to talk about too. All right, so this is from NPR. A 6-year-old shooter raises difficult questions for the criminal justice system. And I mean, if I this to me is the most American headline I've ever seen in my life. Police say a 6-year-old student shot his teacher at a Virginia elementary school on Friday and authorities face a difficult uh, and uncomfortable question. How should they prosecute a crime committed by a first grader? The investigation is ongoing into the shooting of Rich Neck Elementary School in Newport News, Virginia, but police have not wavered in their determination that the attack was deliberate. She was providing instruction. He displayed a firearm. He pointed it, and he fired one round, Steve Drew, the city's police chief, said in a Monday press conference. This shooting was not accidental. It was intentional. Authorities said... The child acquired the gun at home and brought it to school in his backpack. The gun had been legally purchased by his mother. The victim, 25, oh my God, baby, 25-year-old Abigail Zwerner, was struck in the hand and chest and is in stable condition. At least 16 other children were in the room at the time, police said. The shooter and most of the witnesses are so young that police must work alongside juvenile system specialists, child psychologists, and child protective services to conduct the investigation, the chief said Monday. When asked if authorities would pursue charges against the child or his parents or guardians, Drew replied that no decision will be made until after the investigation has been completed. Obviously, this is a tragedy on every level, said Julie Ellen McConnell, a law professor at the University of Richmond, who directs the school's children's defense clinic. All 50 states, including Virginia, have a juvenile justice system. 
But with a child so young, traditional principles like punishment, accountability, and rehabilitation don't really apply, McConnell said. As a six-year-old, he just doesn't have the intellectual capacity to even understand how to form the intent to commit a crime like this. Virginia law does not set a minimum age for criminal defendants. The state's juvenile detention facilities have a minimum age of 11. But very young children are generally protected from criminal prosecution under a legal doctrine called the infancy defense. Criminal defendants must be found competent to stand trial. Such a determination would be challenging to make about a six-year-old, McConnell said. Instead, authorities may pursue a child-in-need-of-services petition, she said. Such a declaration would allow a court to order social services, including counseling. The firearm used in the shooting, a 9mm Taurus handgun, had been legally purchased by the child's mother, police said on Monday. The gun had been stored in the family's home, police said, though they declined to share further details about how it was secured or how the child knew where the gun was. There, the child obtained the gun, placed it in his backpack, and brought it to school. I mean, this kid's on top of it. Sometimes I like forget my homework. Uh, in Virginia, a historically permissive state for gun policy, it is a misdemeanor to recklessly leave a loaded, unsecured firearm in such a way that it could cause injury to a child under the age of 14. The statute is de designed for situations in which a child harms another child, experts said. In this case, the victim was 25 years old. However, allowing the minor to access that gun, leaving it unsecured, certainly could have endangered the life or limb of that child himself. I think it's also good to not shoot 25-year-olds, um, said Allison Anderman, senior counsel and director of local policy at Giffords Law Center to prevent gun violence. So I do think that this law could be used to hold accountable the adults. Otherwise, prosecutors may be left to draw on the state's criminal neglect statutes to bring a case against a parent, McConnell said. The child is currently receiving treatment at a medical facility under an emergency court order, police said Monday. A judge will determine if we continue with that temporary detention order, if treatment or evaluation continue, the police said, or what the next steps may be. I mean, to me, it's like very ridiculous that we're even discussing, like, should we, like, fucking put a six-year-old, like, on trial? Like, tri obviously, there's a—I'm not saying there's not, like, something deep, deeper wrong with the child that they don't need to have, uh, you know, psychological testing done. Also, if a kid brings a gun to school and shoots his teacher, me thinks there were some warning signs earlier, like he had a dead bird in his bedroom or something. This this shit never just comes out of nowhere. There's always some some sign that Jimmy was a weirdo or, you know, a, a child undergoing trauma. Sorry, it's 2023. A child who had a rough start to life, so he shot his teacher because he couldn't handle his feelings. So um, I, had, I had read somewhere that he, yes. uh, the teacher tried to take the gun away from him. So it's like the he might have just had a gun to be like show his friends at school like hey check out this cool gun right and the teacher was like dog that's a gun give that to me and yeah and I'm sure she said like, dog that's a gun too yeah, probably you don't have time for flowery language when there's a gun in a classroom well also I think um it, it just that just the fact that your six year old has access to a gun shows that you're not in like a you're not in a stable home environment <laughs> yet only a misdemeanor the the gun shouldn't be out. Oh, left the gun on the table. Oops. Where did, where did I put that gun? Get a little beepy thing like when you lost your keys. You're like, where is my gun? I'm always putting that thing down and losing it. Um, It just was like, oh, God. This made me very sad. Very sad. I'm glad the woman, the teacher isn't fucking dead, though. All right. 
All right, moving on to the next article. There's a lot of um, articles about race and football. You know, it's like we're we're, we're really gearing up for, for February, both Black History Month and Super Bowl Sunday. You know, I wouldn't say equally important, but, you know, fine. Uh, all right. So this is from the Washington Post. It's called Blackout. Key findings from Blackout, the Post's series on black NFL coaches. Blackout is a series from the Washington Post examining why black coaches continue to be denied head coaching positions in the NFL nearly 20 years after its implementation of the Rooney Rule. And we covered this a little bit not too, too long ago. Um Wait, did we actually read this exact article? Because why was this showing up now? This is from September 21st. Mm, I don't think we read the whole article, but it just because I think they're they're selecting these again because of the Super Bowl. Let's see. Which is aimed at providing opportunities uh, more equitably. A, a cultural and financial powerhouse, the NFL has been under increased scrutiny since the offseason when two black head coaches were fired, briefly leaving the league with just one. Uh, One of those fired coaches, Brian Flores, later sued the league and its team for discrimination. Amid that scrutiny, the Post analyzed three decades worth of data on the hiring performance, retention and professional networks of NFL head coaches. Post reporters also interviewed 16 of the 24 living black men who have served as NFL head coaches, as well as former players, assistants, executives, agents and others. This series will continue throughout the NFL season. Here are the key takeaways so far. Um, black coaches continue to be underrepresented. In the NFL, 58% of players are black and just a quarter are white. As recently as last decade, nearly 70% of the players were black. But just 11% of full-time head coaches since 1990 have been black. During that time, 154 white men have served as an NFL head coach compared with 20 black men. In each of the past four seasons, including this one, just three of the league's 32 head coaches have been black. And almost two decades after the Rooney rule was implemented, 13 teams have never hired a black full-time head coach. Uh, If they get the job, they're more likely to be fired. Since 1990, black full-time head coaches have led teams to a... 0.500 record or better in 78 regular seasons. In 9% of those instances, those coaches were fired afterward. In the same stretch, white coaches who met that benchmark were fired just 4% of the time. Also, also what's interesting about this article is I usually don't see the the W in white capitalized, but they're capitalizing in in this one. Uh, Black coaches who have won at least six games in a season have been fired afterward 12% of the time compared with 8% of white coaches. When they win at least nine games in a season, black coaches are fired 8% of the time compared with 2% of white coaches. In other words, black coaches who win at least nine regular um, season games have been fired just as often as white coaches who win at least six. Nearly half of black coaches played in the NFL compared with a quarter of white ones, suggesting a prerequisite exists for some coaches that doesn't for others. Black coaches then languish for nearly twice as long as assistants and position coaches before getting head coaching jobs, the Post found, spending much longer in the league's middle levels of coaching. The black men who became NFL head coaches in the past decade, on average, had spent more than nine years longer than their white counterparts in mid-level assistant jobs and three years fewer as 
coordinators. The league-wide push to hire young, offensive-minded coaches with experienced coaching quarterbacks also has shut out black coaches, who for decades largely were steered away from offensive coaching opportunities. Of the many coaches 40 or younger who have been hired in recent years, only one, Flores, was black, and none was a black offensive coach. White coaches, meanwhile, spent more time in college roles. Since 1990, seven white coaches became first-time NFL head coaches without having coached in the league, a feat no black coach can claim. Those seven coaches have gone a collective uh, 165-205-1, to a .440 winning percentage, which I knew what um, these stats meant. Um, It means uh, like uh, the winning percentage of your games. Right, so right. if you if you have ten games in a season and you go six and four, you have a point six oh oh winning percentage. Awesome, thanks, Mike. Glad to have you here. Appreciate you literally you. just said you wish you knew what they meant. No, I'm not. Oh, okay, I'm not being sassy. Um, in interviews with the Post, current and former coaches described the Rooney Rule's ability to land them interviews and its inability to overcome team owners' biases. Several, well, yeah, I mean. That's the issue with like legislation about race or or sex. It's like you can change the law, but you can't. It's it takes a lot more to change the way people actually feel in their hearts and minds. That's like they have to unlearn a bias, which is like extremely difficult. Uh, several black coaches, including Hall of Famer Tony, how is this Dungy? Dungy, yeah. Tony Dungy described interviews in which they were tacitly told they had no chance. Racist comments were kept to themselves, coaches said, amid concerns about being labeled as difficult. There's a culture of forced silence, Dungy said, because if you want another opportunity, you can't go out and say, that interview that I got was a sham or I didn't get a fair deal. It'll be held against you. Mm Mm-hmm. Black coaches are much more likely to be tapped as interim coaches than for full-time roles, indicating a willingness by owners uh, to entrust their teams to black leaders only when success is out of reach. Black coaches have held 13% of full-time head coaching jobs since 1990 and 31% of interim stints. Steve Wilkes of the Carolina Panthers this season became the latest black coach to take over a flailing franchise. Serving as an interim coach can be a path to a full-time job, but it's a rockier road for black coaches. Just three of 14 black interim coaches, not including Wilkes this season, have been retained on a permanent basis, and all three led their struggling teams to records of .500 or better. For white coaches, the Post found, performing poorly appears to have little impact on their ability to turn their interim experience into a full-time job. Ten of 32 white interims who replaced full-time coaches midseason were promoted to the permanent job with a combined winning percentage of just .361. A team in need of an interim coach typically is a team in disarray. The relative prevalence of black interim coaches echoes a corporate America phenomenon known as the glass cliff in which women and people of color are called on to lead in times of crisis. This has definitely happened to me when, like, network TV shows were doing poorly. Not network, like, just TV shows were doing poorly. Um, uh, I definitely have been called in to, like, woman it up. This is, like, a specific show. I was called in, no joke, to woman it up. because it was, a, And then I ended up getting canceled. In the writer's room, or they were going to put you... No, in the writer's room. I had, a, I had to look over the script. It was, like, about... It had to do with comedy, but it was like too many male comics writing it. And so one of the few female writers on the staff called me in, you know, no, 
known feminist comedian, Corinne Fisher, uh, to fucking like woman it up. It was, this is so funny. Um, It also, uh, some black NFL veterans said, allows teams to get credit for hiring black leaders when the stakes are low. It might pad some of those stats that measure the league's diversity, uh, said Terry Rabisky, a a black former coach who twice served as an interim coach, but never received a full-time job. 25 black men have served as head coaches in the league's modern history. Just 20 have been full-time coaches. Uh, The Post found that the NFL, buoyed by the Rooney Rule's apparent initial success, touted it to corporate America as a model policy. But as the number of black head coaches plunged back to pre-Rooney rule levels and research piled up that the rule was growing obsolete, the league rejected calls for it to significantly modify or overhaul its signature diversity policy. The Rooney rule's familiar flaws, allegations of sham interviews, a lack of enforcement, and a illusory results then surfaced in versions of the policy that were adopted by corporations and governments, a nationwide trend that culminated shortly after George Floyd's murder in 2020. Through interviews with insiders to the rules, history and corporate diversity experts, as well as a review of previously unreported documents, the Post found that the NFL, in its response to a legal threat by lawyers Cyrus Mehri and Johnny Cochran Jr., rejected a proposal for a more comprehensive diversity policy and later refused to make changes. The Post obtained a 2014 letter from the Fritz Pollard Alliance urging the league to broaden the Rooney rule to include coordinators to counteract a league-wide trend toward offensive-minded coaches that further tilted the odds against black candidates. The league rejected the idea. I mean, I just think this whole thing is interesting in general. Uh, the NFL has a lot of um, issues, uh, you know, race, race included, also uh, health, mental health, physical health, uh, it's how it treats um, men who abuse women. There's a lot of problems in the NFL, but I found this one particularly interesting um, because in a space that, quite frankly, just would not exist without black athletes, the fact that there are so few um, uh, black people in uh, higher level coaching positions, you know, I smell a rat. I smell a rat, everybody. Um, and I like learning about things like the Rooney Rule. Like, I would never know about that. See, this is this is a great way to get me interested in football. Now I know about the Rooney Rule. And then even when you look it up on Wiki, um, Wikipedia, it says, The Rooney Rule is a National Football League policy that requires league teams to interview ethnic minority candidates for head coaching and senior football operation jobs. And it is an example of affirmative action, even though before 2022, there was no hiring quota or hiring preference given to minorities, only an interviewing quota, which I mean, that's my problem with shit like this. It's so easy to get around because um, it's just something that like that's like, oh, all the white people already leading stuff can pat themselves on the back. We did. We interviewed them. They just it just happens that this white guy was better. Yes, Michael. There is fuckery with that, though. Like, there's instances where, like, uh, Jim Harbaugh, for instance, they knew he was going to get hired at, like, a certain position, but they had to... Is that a white guy? It's a white guy, yeah. Yeah. But they had to interview a black guy for the job to go through the Rooney rule, so it's like... No, yes. There was, like, a... There was, like, a... a, They couldn't get anybody to come in for the interview because they knew... It was going to, to a white guy. Right. And so people don't want to be made a fool of. There are people there. There is rumors that a certain coach was like, yeah, I'll come in and do an interview. You got to pay me 250 K to do it, though. Oh, that's <laughs> that's fucking awesome. 
That's great. That, now that's affirmative action. That's what I like to see. Fucking use it. Use it. The first actual hiring quota was established before the 2022 season, mandating that at least one member of each team's offensive coaching staff must be either an ethnic minority or a woman. The Rooney Rule was maybe both if you're feeling saucy. The Rooney Rule was established in 2003 and variations of the rule are now in place in other industries. Um, Cool. Great. We're learning, guys. We're learning. Do you feel your brain stretching? I like I like reading articles about things that I'm not like super interested in and then making myself interested in it. And that's what I just did. That's what I just did. Oh my goodness. Okay. Moving on. My nose is running. It's so cold. Or maybe I just burned my teeth with a light today. Teeth whitening. Uh, very painful. Never got it done with the light before. Only the trays. Um, all right. This we've been this is kind of like probably like the biggest shit that's been happening this week. A lot happening with the House and the GOP and McCarthy and na 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 blah blah blah. These are the, the problem is when these are like the biggest stories of the week, you're like, this isn't thrilling. This isn't Andrew Tate's sex trafficking. Give me the goods. But there was one little piece of goss that came out of this. What? You, I mean, we wait till the end, maybe. Or? Well, I want to see what. I, sometimes I like to see what's interesting to you. So the uh, the guy who got yoked up while trying to confront Matt Gates. Oh, yeah. Did they talk about that in here. All right. New York Times. Are we allowed to read from them again? I think that's over. It was like uh, that was Is like the strike over. Yeah, the strike was like I, I feel like it was over and done with like the same week we talked about it. I hadn't even heard about it again since you talked about it. But anyway, I don't want to be a a problem. Um. It was a it was a one day strike. That's what I thought because I was like, <laughs> you had you had texted me like a couple days before we were going on live on air, like you can't use anything from the New York Times this week, Fisher. And then when I was collecting articles on Tuesday, I was like, I think the strike is already over. Are we just going with the sports motif that I, that I call you by your last name? I don't know. I'm feeling masculine today, babes. Sick. Um, divided. Uh, this is from the New York Times. Divided House approves GOP inquiry into weaponization of government. Republicans push through a measure to create a powerful new committee to scrutinize what they have char- uh, charged is an effort by the government to target and silence conservatives. You know, we're conservatives always being silenced. Um, a divided House voted on Tuesday to launch a wide ranging investigation into federal law enforcement and national security agencies as Republicans promised to use their new power in Congress to scrutinize what they said was a concerted effort by government to silence and punish conservatives at all levels from protesters at school board meetings to former president Donald J. Trump on a a uh, party line vote of 221 to 211 with all Democrats opposed. The House approved the formation of the Select Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government, which is to be chaired by Representative Jim Jordan, Republican of Ohio, the incoming chairman of the Judiciary Committee and a staunch ally of Mr. Trump. So funny to be a staunch ally of Mr. Trump in 2023. Mr. Jordan, who was deeply involved in Mr. Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election, has for months been investigating what he says is a bias in federal law enforcement against conservatives. Now that Republicans have the majority, he plans to use his gavel and his subpoena power to escalate and expand that inquiry 
including searching for evidence that federal workers have become politicized and demanding documents about ongoing criminal investigations. In a floor speech, Mr. Jordan said that his goal was not to target Democrats or law enforcement officers who have scrutinized Mr. Trump's behavior. He said his interest was merely in protecting the First Amendment at a time when he said the right was being unfairly targeted. We don't want to go after anyone, he said. We just want it to stop. Still, the panel has such broad reach that it appeared positioned to become a main instrument for Republicans to go after the Biden administration, potentially prompting showdowns over access to highly classified information and the details of criminal inquiries. The subcommittee will have open-ended jurisdiction to scrutinize any issue related to civil liberties or to examine how any agency of the federal government has collected, analyzed, and used information about Americans. It also has authority to obtain some of the most sensitive secrets in the government aliens including information about covert actions that is usually the exclusive territory of the congressional intelligence committees while republicans have traditionally styled themselves as the party of law and order in recent years they have contended that law enforcement has treated mr trump unfairly citing the fbi search of his mar-a-lago property for class i mean it's the unfairly you can't bring that shit home it's like when you work at Macy's and you have to have a clear bag so they know you didn't steal shit. Like, that's just what it is. Uh, for classified White House documents, he did not return for more than a year after leaving office as required by law. They have added other complaints to their ledger to investigate, including allegations that the federal government encouraged Twitter to discriminate against Republicans. I do kind of actually agree with that. And the treatment of conservative or right-wing protesters at school board meetings and abortion clinics. They say they have modeled the new subcommittee after the well-respected church committee, referring to a 1970s investigation by Senator Frank Church, Democrat of Idaho, that uncovered decades of intelligence and civil liberties abuses, including the surveying of civil rights groups. But Representative Jim McGovern, Democrat of Massachusetts, said the panel was more akin to the notorious House Un-American Activities Committee, which demonized Americans suspected of being sympathetic to communism. I call it the McCarthy Committee, and I'm not talking about Kevin. I'm talking about Joe, Mr. McGovern said, adding, this committee is nothing more than a deranged ploy by the MAGA extremists who have hijacked the Republican Party and now want to use taxpayer money to push their far-right conspiracy nonsense. Representative Gerald Nadler, Democrat of New York, echoed that sentiment, arguing the goal of the panel was to enable the House Republicans to interfere with the free operation of businesses they do not like, to inhibit the fight against domestic terrorism, and to settle political scores on behalf of Donald Trump. The Justice Department has traditionally resisted making information about open criminal investigations available to Congress, suggesting that legal and political fights over subpoenas and executive privilege are most likely looming. It remains to be seen who else will serve on the panel. Speaker Kevin McCarthy made numerous concessions to a far-right faction of his party to win the speakership, and the full extent of his promises is not known. Both Mr. Jordan and Mr. McCarthy have spoken for months about their desire for such an investigation and pledged to voters during the 2020 campaign to 
carry one out. It is undeniable that in recent years, the executive branch of the federal government has abused its authority and violated the civil liberties of American citizens, often for political purposes, said Representative Tom Cole, Republican of Oklahoma, in endorsing the legislation on the floor. Late last year, Mr. Jordan, then the top Republican on the Judiciary Committee, oversaw a 1,000-page staff report. I mean, who's reading this? Which was mostly a collection. I mean, this this reminds me of like when the of the part in uh, Fahrenheit 9-11, uh, Michael Moore's documentary film, where they're talking to like political insiders and people who were on staff during, uh, for the Bush administration, that there was like a document on his desk that was like, plan to attack Twin Towers or something. And he was like, I'm not going to read that. That just doesn't seem that doesn't seem like something we need to pay attention to. Uh, so oversaw a 1000 page staff report, which was most likely uh, mostly a collection of letters mailed by his committee that claimed that the FBI had spied on President Trump's campaign and ridiculed conservative Americans and that the rot within the FBI festers in and proceeds from Washington. The resolution appears to enable Mr. Jordan to issue subpoenas to the Justice Department for information about the special counsel inquiry into Mr. Trump's attempts to overturn the 2020 election and his handling of classified documents, along with other politically charged matters like an open tax investigation into President Biden's son, Hunter Biden. While Mr. Jordan's inquiry will be housed within the Judiciary Committee. Its 13 members, eight of whom would be Republicans, will not be limited to lawmakers on that panel. That could result in lawmakers trying to scrutinize a Justice Department investigation while the department examines some of those same lawmakers' conduct concerning the events of January 6th. As <laughs> I'm just picturing the Spider-Man meme. <laughs> the Spider-Man like meme? Him pointing at him and then... I'm going to bring it up. You lo- do. Please make it. Get, let's bring on a visual element. Um, as the House debated the select committee's creation on Tuesday, Democrats repeatedly emphasized that both Mr. McCarthy and Mr. Jordan had refused to comply with subpoenas um, from the committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol, an inquiry that they both uh, sought to block. Mr. Jordan strategized with Mr. Trump about an effort to disrupt the certification over the results of the 2020 election on the floor of the House. The primary purpose of this special subcommittee is to interfere with a special counsel's ongoing investigation into a conspiracy to overturn the 2020 election, said Representative Dan Goldman, Democrat of New York, who was a top aide to Democrats who led the first impeachment of Mr. Trump in 2019. This is a shocking abuse of power, but it's not just the usual efforts by members on the other side of the aisle to once again do Donald Trump's dirty work. This time they're trying to protect themselves. Republicans have made little secret of the fact that they plan to shower the Biden administration with investigations, some of them overtly political in nature. But They won bipartisan support on Tuesday for the formation of a separate select committee focused on the strategic competition between the United States and the Chinese government. On a vote of 365 to 65, the House formed a special committee to investigate the Chinese government's economic, technological and security progress and its competition with the United States. The panel is set to be led by Representative Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin, a Marine veteran known as a sober minded national security hawk. 
Its mission is to examine a slew of topics, including the economic dependence of the United States on Chinese supply chains, the nation's security assistance to Taiwan, and lobbying efforts by the Chinese government to influence local and state government as well as academic institutions. Mr. Gallagher said the two countries are in the early stages of a new Cold War. We see, and this really ties into like our main story, which is about a bipartisan vote regarding China. Um, we see this aggression here at home where the party has stolen American intellectual property, technology, and industrial capacity, undermining our economy and good-paying American jobs, he said, referring to the Chinese Communist Party. Most Democrats supported the panel, but some had reservations. Representative Judy Chu, Democrat of California and the chairwoman of the Congressional Asian Pacific American Caucus, said that while there were legitimate concerns about the actions of the Chinese government, she opposed forming the committee because of the known risks of xenophobic rhetoric intensifying anti-Asian hate here in the United States, which I mean, again, this is just like the fuck up with COVID starting all over again and, you know, and identity politics and this uh, this culture that liberals have created actually causing harm. It's like you shouldn't be racist, but also sometimes things happen in a certain area or amongst a certain group of people. And that doesn't mean that it's racist. It's just more like that's the group of people doing it at the time. Like at any, at any point in time, any given group of people will be the villain. And at any given point in time, any group of people will be the hero. And that just fluctuates. Um, Republicans on Monday also approved a third wide-ranging investigation to look into the coronavirus pandemic, including the origins of the virus, so-called gain-of-function research, the production of vaccines, and the conduct of Dr. Anthony S. Fauci, Mr. Biden's former chief and medical advisor, whom Republicans uh, have pledged to call before them for questioning. And also with the xenophobia, like if... To me, the xenophobia that happened uh, during COVID-19 against Chinese Americans, it's like it just shows how fucking stupid we are as a culture that we would be racist against Chinese people here for some for it's like what it doesn't it doesn't make it makes absolutely no sense. Um, And to me, that's like, let's pump some more money into like a geography class or education or books or some kind of a program. I don't know. It's, it's not great. It's not a great situation here. Um, all right. Oh, and this is, a, this is big. This is the last story from girl until we get into a double, a double trouble cuties corner. Um, so I actually found kind of an interesting piece, uh, on climate change and it's because it's an opinion piece from the New York Times. So although it doesn't include breasts, juggling or jiggling, which we will get to, not today, but soon, um, it's not as boring of an article as usual on climate change. So this is an opinion guest essay. It's called, I'm a scientist who spoke up about climate change. My employer fired me. I always like things like this. And this is by Dr. Rose Abramoff, uh, who is an earth scientist who studies the effect of climate change on natural and managed ecosystems. And you know what? In a world full of Twitter disinformation, it's always nice to hear from a doctor. I like hearing from a doctor. That's nice. Uh, Shortly after the new year, I was fired from Oak Ridge National Laboratory after urging fellow scientists to take action on climate change. 
at the American Geophysical Union meeting in December, just before speakers took the stage for a plen- plenary set. What does that mean? God damn it. Add this to the fucking um, dictionary, please. And I'm looking it up right now. Okay. To a I'm going to I'm going to guess. Like it's like feels like planning, right? Yeah, I would assume. But it's plenary. Plenary. But it's not it's not okay, so plenary to be attended by all participants at a conference or assembly who otherwise meet in smaller groups. Plenary. Okay. So it's like a bunch of subcommittees, but this is the committee. This is meeting. the yeah, yeah, yeah. Plen- okay. Plenary. Okay, great. I love this. Oh, my God. We should do some kind of like a, a spelling bee definition bee and, and watch me just absolutely fail. I, I don't know who I would be going against, me versus me versus you. I think you would win. Fresh. Um, it's January, and we already have two on the list. So I think. I know. I feel. I wish I had all the words from all the other episodes. If you guys want to, you guys feel free to m- email me words I didn't know along the way that you were like, why doesn't this bitch know it? I, I have been on record the whole time that I have a, that – um, I think I have a very, you know, interesting view of the world and some cool ideas, but my vocabulary is and always has been small. Um, that's a generational thing though. Like in the 1950s, like the stats of how many words people knew compared to now, it's like, it's real bad. Um, okay. Uh, just before speakers, uh, took the stage for, uh, plenary um session my fellow climate scientist peter kalmus and i unfurled a banner that read out of the lab and into the streets in the few seconds before the banner was ripped from our hands we implored our colleagues to use their leverage as scientists to wake the public up to the dying planet soon after this brief action the agu an organization with 60,000 members in the earth and space scientists expelled us from the conference and withdrew the research that we had presented that week from the program. Eventually, it began a professional misconduct inquiry. It's ongoing. I love drama in other areas. Any drama that's not in comedy, I eat it up like this. Nom, 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 nom. Um, Then on January 3rd, Oak Ridge, the laboratory outside Knoxville, where I had worked as an associate scientist for one year, terminated my employment. I am the first Earth scientist I know of to be fired for climate activism. I fear I will not be the last. Oak Ridge said it was forced to fire me because I misused government resources by engaging in a personal activity on a work trip and because I did not adhere to its code of business ethics and conduct. The code has points on scientific integrity, maintaining the institution's reputation, and using government resources only as authorized and appropriate and with integrity, responsibility, and care. Which I I totally get that you shouldn't be doing like your own fucking experiments on government money or work money. But to me, using science with integrity is finding the truth. Is it not? It's finding the truth and revealing it, even if it's not what people want to hear. Is that not the fucking... the root of integrity. Um, when Dr. Kalmus and I decided to make our statement during the lunch plenary, they love this word session. I knew that we risked being asked to leave the stage or the conference, but I did not expect that our research would be removed from the program or that I would lose my job. You did a bold thing, bitch. Um, when I began participating in climate actions with other scientists, 
in 2022, senior managers at Oak Ridge asked that I make it clear to the public and the media that I spoke and acted on my own behalf. I followed these guidelines to the best of my ability, including at AGU, where Dr. Kalmus, a scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and I did not mention our institutions in our statements. The retaliation... I faced from the AGU and Oak Ridge ultimately highlights a disappointing reality that established scientific institutions will not even support scientists interrupting a meeting for the climate. I'm all for decorum, but not uh, when it will cost us the earth. I used to be a well-behaved scientist. Now I'm a bad girl scientist. I stood quietly on melting permafrost in, uh, I'm not even going to, I don't, that's letters that don't go together in, Utkiavik, Alaska, and measured how much greenhouse gas. Utkiavik. Utkiavik, Alaska. Thanks. And measured how much greenhouse gas was released into the atmosphere. I filled spreadsheets and ran simulations about how warming temperatures would increase the carbon emissions from soil. To do my job, I dissociated the data. Um, I was working with from the terrifying future it represented. But in the field, smelling the dense rot of New England hemlock trees that were being eaten by a pest that now survives the warming winters, I felt loss and dread. Only my peers read my articles, which didn't seem to have any tangible effects. Though I saw firsthand the oncoming catastrophe of climate change, I felt powerless to help. We all do, boo. I did, however... Believe that if scientists told the truth about the climate emergency, our scientific institutions would get out the message to policymakers, government officials, the media, and the public. But they didn't, at least not sufficiently, even as carbon emissions continued to rise and the climate continued to warm. A few years ago, Scientist Rebellion, an international network of scientists, mm, concerned about climate change, I need a Scientist Rebellion t-shirt if anyone wants to send me one, began a series of strategic acts of nonviolent civil disobedience. After years of waiting in vain for meaningful public action to address climate change, I decided to join them. For my first action, yes, I chained myself to a White House gate to demand that the Biden administration declare a climate emergency. Fun fact about me, (laughs) fun fact about me, I I have the aura of a bitch who's changed herself to something, but I've never changed myself to anything except for, for sex stuff. Um, so, I'm hurt. I've chained myself to something. Are you serious? What? In high school. What did you chain yourself to? At a joint? At, all right, you bitch. Uh, <laughs> Marinick High School. They were going to get rid of a, uh, a memorial for World War II veterans oh. to put in an auxiliary football field. And okay. I was like... That's fucking lame. Wow. And I wanted to get out of class my last day of There's year. There's the Michael we know and love. Sophomore year. So I, uh, yeah, I went down to the hardware store, got a big ass chain, chained myself up. The news showed up. It was dope. Is, is the thing still up or down? It's, st- it's still there. Oh, wow. Look at you. Yeah. Really earning your position here at, at, at uh, Without a Country. One of us has to. What? what? I, 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 I chain for my beliefs. Uh, listen, I've done a lot of protesting in my day. I just never physically chained myself. I got slammed against a, a, a brick wall by the police. Who's horny? Um, all right. Since I locked that first chain around my waist, this is like a Joni Mitchell song now, I have been arrested three times in nonviolent actions. 
Get violent, bitch. That's why no one's listening. My superiors at Oak Ridge warned me to be careful, but did not discipline me. But I was motivated to continue because these scientist-led political campaigns have attracted positive media attention and contributed to major policy wins. At the end of last year, a group of us protested the impact of luxury travel at more than a dozen private airport terminals in 13 countries. Within a month of our actions, uh, the Podemos Party of Spain submitted a request to the European Commission to take measures to reduce the use of private planes. When scientists take action, people listen. The scientific community has tried writing dutiful reports for decades with no reduction in greenhouse gas emissions from fossil fuels to show for it. It is time to try something new. We must work to change the culture of our institutions, be honest about our values, advocate for climate justice, and experiment. Great experiments push at the boundaries of knowledge and uh, propriety. They are risky, volatile, blasphemous. But when they work, the world changes. I'm amped up, are you? Scientific institutions should support activism and advocacy, especially by experts. The AGU should do more to publicly support policies informed by its members' science, such as declaring a climate emergency and ending fossil fuel extraction and subsidies. I did not make the decision to become an activist lightly. I recognize that my actions would have consequences and I knew that I could face retaliation, but inaction during this critical time will have far greater consequences. And now that is a piece that gets me excited about climate change. Not that it's happening, but just like talking about it. This was the article that we needed. This is what we needed. I can't have a bunch of stats that I don't understand. I need a lady fucking chaining herself to things, getting posters torn out of her hand, losing her job. This is a soap opera I'd watch. I'm into it. Thank you so much, doctor. All right. Now we go on to Cutie's Corner. Uh, took a little uh, sugar-free Red Bull break. Nothing hits like that. <sighs> Nothing hits like a sugar-free Red Bull. Okay. Um, so this is uh, an article from late last year, but I just, um, in my reading this week, I it caught my eye that there was about to be a ban on foie gras, and it made me so happy because, to me, this is like what I would I would call a torture food. There are some foods... You know, you know, I, I don't think we really should be eating animals, but, you know, t- from time to time, I put a bird in my mouth. I'm not pretending I don't. And I definitely always put fish in my mouth, but that's just because I don't know if they have feelings or not. And I'm telling myself they don't for now so I can continue eating some shrimp. Um, but I uh, there's like foie gras and uh, uh, veal. These are like my top two things that shouldn't exist anymore. And I know I'm sorry. They're delicious. I'm sorry. But it's just like when you hear how they're made, how can we still be eating these things? So this is from CNN. New York uh, City's ban on foie gras violates law, New York State says. And as usual, um, California had already banned foie gras a long time ago because they're always ahead with animal shit. But then I also, I think, I'm not sure, but I saw um, something that I think that was also overturned again then. So apparently... Foie gras, very important to a powerful group of people, which makes sense because who the fuck is eating foie gras? Rich people is the answer. So if they want it, they're getting it. I was actually also reading about like the most um, 
what what is considered the best restaurant in the entire world, which is in Copenhagen, uh, is set to close at the end of 2024. And so I told uh, my friend Mike Coscarelli, uh, we are we love we love fine dining. Um, so I was like, we got to go to Copenhagen before the end of 2024. But then I was reading the menu, and one and one of their most famous items is like a fucking reindeer heart or something. And I go, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing there. They also have. Um, ice cream served out of out of a beeswax bowl, which sounds fun, but again, like we gotta we gotta be careful with bees. I don't know that a bowl for ice cream is the best usage of their wax. Anyway, we move on. Um, uh, the state of New York has determined that New York City's ban on foie gras, stuffed goose or duck liver, violates state law, according to documents filed in New York City Superior Court. The State Department of Agriculture and Markets informed city officials Wednesday that the ban unreasonably restricts the operations of two farms that sued the city over the ban, LaBelle Farm and Hudson Valley Foie Gras. New York City had originally passed a bill in 2019 to ban restaurants and retailers from selling the fatty duck or goose liver considered a delicacy by some. In a letter to New York Mayor Eric Adams and Division of Legal Counsel Chief Stephen Lewis, the department requested that the city confirm that it will not enforce its ban on the sale of force-fed products marketed by Hudson Valley Foie Gras and La Belle Farm. The city ban on foie gras was to go into effect November 25th. However, a state Supreme Court judge in September put the ban on hold as the lawsuit by the two upstate New York farms proceeded through the courts. The original bill to ban foie gras uh, called the luxury good a force-fed product. And in a statement to CNN in 2019, City Councilwoman Car- uh, Carlina Rivera, the prime sponsor of the bill, called force-feeding an inhumane practice. I'll say. Uh, what makes foie gras so contentious is the method of preparation. Foie gras is made of fattened duck or goose liver, and it has long been considered a French delicacy, so much that France has protected it as part of its cultural heritage. But the product is made by force-feeding ducks or geese, a practice that many people like Rivera have found troubling. Again, if you don't find it troubling... I am troubled by you. As a lifelong advocate for animal rights, I am excited that the council has voted to pass this historic legislation to ban the sale of these specific force-fed animal products, Rivera said in 2019. It's also like sometimes with this shit, it's like, who was the first person to decide to force-feed a goose and then eat the liver to know that that was good? How does that even come about? Um... Foie gras has long been a point of contention. In 2012, California's foie gras ban went into effect only to have the ban overturned in 2015. Then in 2017, the ban was upheld by a circuit court judge, a decision that was backed by the U.S. Supreme Court in January 2019. And I just think it's important more so, listen, once you have the knowledge about how something is made or what goes into it, you can do with that information with whatever you want. But I think it's important that you know, because I think, sadly, I have one time during New York Restaurant Week consumed foie gras because not never in my fucking, you know, sweet, innocent college student mind did I think that we were making foods by force feeding animals. I thought it was just like a part of the animal that we uh, that we were using and I'm like, well, the animal's dead anyway so, anyway, so let's eat all the parts. I didn't know that the animal was tortured before it died. 
Um, so yeah, if you want to eat still eat foie gras, knowing how it's made, that's your thing. But I just want you to know. Um, Torture, Michael. I mean, is is foie gras an important part of your life? Absolutely not. Okay. I think I think it's I think duck is gross. So there you go. It's too fatty. Well, it's extra fatty if it's foie gras. Right, but I'm making the point. I think it's actually more humane because oh they feed the duck until the duck just doesn't want to live anymore. That's that's yeah, that's torture. I mean, yeah, think of how uncomfortable it is to even like overeat at a fucking buffet as a right. human being in charge of your own stomach. Exactly. You you feel like you want to die. Versus the happy little ducks that are running around some farm somewhere. That aren't being force-fed. Are you really proud of yourself in this contrarian moment? I'm just saying that it's it's like the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. If you give me food that wants to die, then I feel less ethically bad about eating said food. Disgusting. This is this is then eat roadkill, Michael. Eat a fucking raccoon that was hit by a car. Act like I ain't never eaten roadkill. <laughs> what? You have like a garage refrigerator with just roadkill in it? I got friends from the south. You're sick. Um, but that whatever. That's fine. You know, good for you. Um, Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh, God. The second um, story in Cutie's Corner. This is a real cute one, and I felt like we needed to do this story, especially uh, upon my grand return from the AVN Awards. This is from Fox News. Utah Sheriff's Office mourns death of porn-sniffing dog that helped put pedophiles behind bars. Everything conservatives love. Porn, pedophiles dogs uh url started um his the life police. what the police the police yes also that this dog is so fucking cute too uh url started his life as a pound puppy before being recruited as a police canine oh my god do you remember the stuffed animals pound puppies so cute i love them i have them also shout out to our um our new engineer it's week one jorge is that your name right Yes. That was right. Sorry. <laughs> I was like, please remember. Please remember. How, uh, how, how old are you? Uh, 25. My birthday is on Monday. Oh, okay. So happy early birthday. Exciting. Thank you. Um, and do you know who the Spice Girls are? And if so, who is your favorite Spice Girl? Uh, is Mel B one of the Spice Girls? Yeah. Mel B is one of the Spice Girls. Yeah. Are you just picking a name? Do you even know which one she is? Do you know what her like, like what she did? Uh, I'm somewhat familiar. I know her, her and Posh are the ones that like, I know okay. in my head. This is acceptable. So you, so if you were challenged to name all five, you, would, nope. you wouldn't be able to do that? Nope. Do you know their Spice Girl names? Well, you said Posh, but do you know Mel B's Spice Girl name? No. Okay. And what, what about Mel B really like spoke to your heart? Uh, I don't know. I feel like she might have been in, like when she was on like Dancing with the Stars or something. Maybe uh, I saw her. She was on. She might have been on Dancing with the Stars too. She was on America's Got uh, Talent. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. as a judge though for a while. She went. She had a file for bankruptcy, so she did a lot of she did a lot of stints on some reality shows that had a fast paycheck. <laughs> I'm gonna be honest. Um, <laughs> all right, so. A former pound puppy who gained national attention for his work at a Utah sheriff's office for sniffing out electronic devices that often contain child pornography and other illegal materials has died at the age of seven. That's too young. Spend your whole life just sifting through kitty porn that'll lead you to an early grave. I know. It's like fucking the irony. Like you're sniffing child porn and then you die as a child. Seven's not a seven's not a child for a dog. It's like four, like thirties or forties, but still makes me sad. 
URL was not bred to be a police dog and instead had a rough start as a pound puppy and bounced through two different animal shelters and one foster home within the first few months of his life. The Weber County Sheriff's Office posted to Facebook announcing URL's death. The Black Lab retired from the force in January last year and had been living with his handler. He died on December 30th, just shy of his eighth birthday, according to the sheriff's office. Despite URL initially being deemed untrainable, a rescue center in Indiana recognized the pup's unique talents, which launched him into police training and ultimately into the Weber County Sheriff's Office. URL was trained... What is this pop-up? URL was trained in the infancy of a nationwide program intended to include electronic storage detection in police services. URL was only the fourth dog to be certified as such in the United States, the sheriff's office stated. URL and his handler, Detective Cameron Hartman, were able to execute more than 2,000 arrest warrants together, with the canine often sniffing out electronic devices involving child pornography and other sex abuse cases. He soon gained the moniker of porn-sniffing dog. Legend. In one of URL's more remarkable cases, according to the sheriff's office, he starred in a porno. <laughs> he was able to sniff out a USB drive disguised as a key on a key ring full of keys. In other cases, URL found an SD card that was hidden on a high shelf in a Utah residence and a cell phone hidden in a book. He even managed to find a micro SD card that was hidden in a baby jar stored inside a pencil case and hidden in a cedar chest with other items. I, I, I see the yes digital listeners right now just getting out a pen and like writing out all the spaces where you can hide child pornography. Uh, his work launched him into the national spotlight. The pooch was flown with his handler to Los Angeles in 2017 for an interview with actor Terry Crews and was featured on the show Cops. So many, it's always good when a dog has better TV credits than you. Uh, so many incredible. You think cops is a better TV credit? It, uh, you know what? It's, it's a better TV credit than no TV credit, Michael. I've been on Laughs on Fox and an extra on Dawson's Creek. Yeah, and you're AVN Award nominated. Well, I mean, yeah, that's not. That's on your IMDb page now. Is it? Did you check? (laughs) I put it there. Oh, thank you. Uh, So many incredible experiences and opportunities that you brought me as I was just the guy at the boring end of the leash holding on for dear life. Thank you, URL, for trusting me, for working so hard, for loving me unconditionally, and for being part of my family. His handler wrote in a message included in the sheriff's office's announcement. (sighs) URL's cause of death has not been revealed. (laughs) <laughs> did he get the jab <laughs> fucking got the jab he he hung himself in his prison cell um <laughs> <laughs> early reports find chocolate the culprit oh url what a privilege it was to serve alongside you url my heart is broken and still filled with so many memories and emotions i am so lucky lucky to have been able to get to know you and serve the citizens of utah and its surrounding states with you hartman added in his statement on url's passing i'm it was so funny because as i the first time i read this article before i came into the studio i was like wait how is he fucking sniffing out por- like porn? I like and and then I was like specifically child porn and like I understand now that it was like just the, the, he was sniffing out the actual technology, but I was like how I was like well, how are they making him smell child porn through through a di- through digitization? <laughs> oh god, I'm so dumb sometimes. 
really, really funny. Um, all right. And um, the last story is about, we kind of got into it in that previous New York Times article. Um, so I, this will just be the conservative take on it, I suppose, because I don't, because it, it is by a bipartisan um, thing, uh, which never happens. Uh, the conservatives and, or the Republicans and the Democrats never agree on anything. So that's what made this interesting as the main story of the week. Uh, but this part is from Fox News. Uh, McCarthy, GOP, uh, Dems unite uh, behind new China committee. The era of trusting communist China is over. Several Democrats spoke in favor of new committee during House debate. Um, House Republicans and Democrats on Tuesday joined forces and voted overwhelmingly in favor of a new committee to examine U.S. strategic competition with China after House Speaker Kevin McCarthy declared on the House floor that neither Republicans nor Democrats trust China anymore. We spent decades passing policies that welcomed China into the global system, McCarthy said. In return, China has exported oppression, aggression and anti-Americanism. Well, yeah, I mean, they're China. They're not going to be American. Uh, Today, the policy of its military and economy are growing at the expense of freedom and democracy worldwide. It didn't start under this administration, but the current administration has clearly made it worse, he continued. Its policies have weakened our economy and made us more vulnerable to the threat of the CCP or the Chinese Communist Party. There is bipartisan consensus that the era of trusting communist China is over, McCarthy added. While Democrats have already made it clear that they are prepared to oppose most GOP proposals in the new Congress, several said on the floor that they support the idea and would vote for the Select Committee on China Competition, and only a handful spoke in opposition to the idea. The House voted 365 to 65 in favor of creating the committee, which was supported by every Republican and more than two-thirds of the House Democrat caucus. Representative Jim McGovern, Democrat Massachusetts, the top Democrat on the House Rules Committee, said he was worried about some aspects of the committee, including whether it would only focus on military competition with China. He and other Democrats also said that the committee should not fuel anti-Asian hate. President Donald Trump repeatedly mislabeled COVID with racist language, McGovern said. Such rhetoric coincided with spikes in hate-based acts of violence and discrimination against people of Chinese or Asian origin across our country. This language has no place on this committee or anywhere in Congress. While I do have concerns here after reading the resolution itself, I will be voting yes, McGovern said. The Democratic Party has led the way in implementing efforts to monitor China's compliance with international human rights and rule of law standards, and we will continue to do so here. And kind of going back to that last paragraph, I mean, I think that was like, again, a part of a much larger problem. It's like, yes, obviously, like, like just because a country is acting in a way that is, you know, quote unquote, un-American does not mean that we just start using like, you know, fucking Chinese racial slurs. It's the, the it's the place and its government that is the issue, not the people or the ethnicity. And it's, again, just really troublesome that Americans can't differentiate between the two. Uh, McCarthy assured Democrats that the committee would not uh, devolve into partisan posturing and said that he wants Republicans and Democrats to build a strategy together to help America face a rising China. Do not be concerned. Those are my same concerns as well, and they will not take place, McCarthy said in response to McGovern. You have my word and my commitment, McCarthy added. 
this is not a partisan committee. This will be a bipartisan committee that is mindful of my desire, my wish that we, uh, we speak with one voice, that we focus on the challenges that we have. The threat is too great for us to bicker with ourselves, he said. The mission of the committee, which was proposed by McCarthy, is to investigate and submit policy recommendations on the status of the Chinese Communist Party's economic, technological, and security progress and its competition with the United States. It is being established after the growing realization in the U.S. that China is America's most immediate economic competitor and military threat. In his acceptance speech early Saturday morning, McCarthy said the committee would investigate how to bring back hundreds of thousands of jobs that went to China and win the economic competition. And it's interesting, finally, that um, both Republicans and Democrats do agree on this issue because for months um, it's kind of been going back and forth about whether or not China is a threat. And a lot of liberals, if you tried to bring up the fact that like uh, or concern that China was a threat, would call you xenophobic. And to me, it's been pretty clear for several years that like we probably shouldn't be trusting China, but there's a lot of countries that we shouldn't be trusting. I I mean, you know, I live by the X-Files rule, trust no one. So um, it's uh, it's now interesting to see that come about and certainly will be interesting to see how uh, liberals and uh, Democratic news sources start covering this as this goes on and on and on and on. Um, and that is it. I did look to see if there was any update on the whereabouts of David Miscavige this week. And I really didn't find much of anything, um, except for this, like, kind of like fake bloggy type website, but like, it kind of was like a bait and switch. Like it said that, you know, he was maybe going to start, um, new areas of Scientology. And I was like, oh, that's interesting that he's starting new areas of Scientology. That must mean that they found him. But then I clicked on it and it was like, we don't really have any fucking information here. Um, and then also, I know I mentioned it briefly last week, but if you didn't see me recommend it on my Instagram story over the holidays when I was, you know, really spiraling, uh, there is a, uh, very interesting uh, documentary called The Chris D'Elia Problem, I believe, on YouTube. It's like an, yeah, it's The Chris D'Elia Problem. So if you just type The Chris D'Elia Pro- Problem on YouTube or even on Google, it'll come up. It um, It's up to over half um, a million views. Um, and Comedian pot. That, that's the start of it. Sorry, um, I got hyped. No, that's fine. And it uh, it was uh, done by a comedian named Kyle Anderson. Um, and uh, I think it's a very interesting watch um, because this was something that we discussed at length um, on the show. And I think people were kind of surprised about uh, maybe how I covered it. Of course, anytime uh, a known feminist even kind of gives uh, a chance to hearing out a sexual predator all the uh male comics who love supporting male predators jump on those sound bites and that's certainly what they did when i was discussing uh the legality of uh, what chris delia was accused of and i stand by what i what I, the conversation that we had which was the conversation was um you know if we're talking about like morality versus legality uh, and going after watching this documentary, I definitely think um, there are both moral and legal issues with what Chris D'Elia, um was doing. I still do stand by the fact that 
uh, hemophilia is uh, a lot different than pedophilia. Um, no, that's a conversation that no one really wants to have, but I do think it's like very important to make the, the distinction between those two things. Um, but also like, if you watch this, like it's, he, Chris Lee is, is just a fucking asshole who's trying to start a cult and no amount of power is enough for this very mediocre man. And I mean, I think that's the best way to describe everything about Chris D'Elia. The way he looks, his comedy. I will say his podcast is above mediocre. I really do did enjoy his podcast for many years. He's a great podcaster. Um, but yeah, again, someone who kind of made his uh, persona asshole who doesn't give a shit. And then you're like, oh, wait, he actually just is an asshole who doesn't give a shit, which, again, is aggravating as someone who likes to do a bit of a character. Um, Michael, you said you you also watched this over the holidays. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a requisite viewing with the family for the holidays. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I, and I do think it's, uh, you know, everyone in comedy certainly needs to needs to watch this. And it's so funny because there are so there were so many people who just like are waiting for me to say anything like negative against anyone who's uh, deemed a sexual predator. Like they're just so ready to um, simp for him. And it was like pathetic. I'm like, just fucking watch the documentary. I'm like, not, I'm not just like out to get people. I just think, I think the truth is, aren't, isn't the truth what we're all ultimately pursuing. That's what I thought my whole life, but apparently not. A lot of people are just pursuing, avoiding the truth. Um, but I mean, after watching this, what are your thoughts? I'll be honest with you. You still, you're still on team Crystalia. Look, I mean, like it's weird the way he did the documentary. The Where, the filmmaker. The filmmaker. What's yeah. weird about it? So it's like there's there it, it, it keeps teasing you with like yeah he went after a bunch of underage girls never talked to any anyone who hooked up with him while they were underage um, no firsthand accounts it's all secondhand thirdhand accounts of anything that's actually illegal and a lot of like yeah he's kind of a shitty guy. Well, it's to me it, it's it it was getting more into like R Kelly sex cult territory. Again, that's just a bad guy. Like I, I don't. Well, no, think- no, no, and that's and that's. But to me, that's the larger conversation. It's like how bad of a guy do you have to be, and and also like maybe maybe the law needs to be expanded to cover bad guys. If like we're all agreeing that that he is a bad guy, you know, isn't what that that what the law is there for to protect us from the bad guys. And and that's the conversation that I was originally having. It's like, okay, so is it legal if you're 30 to fuck a 17-year-old in some states? Yes, it is. Should it be? And what does that mean? And what does the age of consent mean? And wh- what's the largest age gap that we should be able to, you know, that you should be able to fuck someone? And when, what, and what age are we able to make to make sexual coherent sexual decisions about our own bodies? These are all questions that I have, and I'm open to discussion. Um, but I also think here, you know. And then obviously it comes into play like the power of of fame and celebrity. Okay, but at the end of the day, like, you know, that washes away. What washes away? The power of fame and celebrity. When does it wash away? I mean, I don't know. You tell me. Like I I, I remember when I, you know, was was nervously walking up to you to ask you for a, a picture of QED and, and now he, I he goes, I, Now that's washed away. Now I, I bust your balls like a friend. You know what I mean? So uh, it's like it's a little I know, but but the, the, the power of celebrity doesn't wash away within one hotel meeting. I don't know. I mean I, I especially not when you're a seventeen year old girl. 
Okay, but we didn't hear from the 17-year-old girls. We heard from the 24-year-old girls who still had stars in their eyes. I know. Have you ever met a 24-year-old, though? They're fucking idiots. Yeah, I know. They're great. They're such good... Oh, my God. (laughs) I'm just saying, once you've seen somebody's O-face, like there is like a certain level of vulnerability there where it's like, oh, yeah, this is just a person that I'm now in bed with or... You know, on all fours on the ground for. You've so obviously never been a 24-year-old girl. And in many ways, I've also not been a 24-year-old girl. But, like, I have been a 24-year-old girl. Just just as someone who's heard the stories of literally thousands of 24-year-old girls, um, I just know that's not – that's not – how they're thinking and like it, 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 and in some ways it bothers me too and that's why I got like I wish I could have been all these women's moms because they then would not have been impressed by Crystalia but unfortunately many 24 year old women were raised in households um, that would then put them out into the world as someone who would be in- impressed by Crystalia and that is just a sad fact of reality and um, I, if I could change that I certainly would anyway this is more so like a recommended viewing um, I think it's interesting um, and whether or not, you know, and again, it's just like, it, it's a larger conversation about legality versus morality. And, uh, but I think we can all agree that Chris Lee is like just an asshole. And I get, yeah, and I get, I think that's not illegal, but. Just don't fuck Chris D'Elia. Don't fuck Chris D'Elia. I agree with that. I wouldn't want to. Yeah, because. There was you... at no point that I wanted, ever wanted to fuck Chris D'Elia. Yeah, but I mean, come on. Like I bet very no, for few, sure. I bet very few comics will do it for you in the way that like most twenty four year old girls like. It's like seeing a magic show. You know what I mean? Seeing a magic show? Yeah, yeah. yeah. If somebody like somebody like Dalia, who's all oh, high because, energy, because and, I know how to do comedy, so comedy doesn't impress me as much. Right. In some ways, comedy impresses me more though because I I, I do know how hard it is, and I and I think people are I think people are almost under impressed by comedy because it's just talking. You know, and it, and it almost seems like there is no skill when in reality, I think it's one of the tough making people laugh consistently is one of the toughest skills that there is. Right. But I think that's specifically where it comes to with Dalia, right? Because his act is a lot of like it's voices, it's act out. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of crummy. Right. To you. Right. But to somebody who's sitting there who like, oh, my God, I can't believe Chris went and brought it all back around to that. <laughs> Like, that's going to impress a bunch of fucking young dudes who are then going to see, like, whose girls who are friends with them are going to be like, oh, my God, this guy's so brilliant. I He's love so funny. The, I love the voices that you're doing of the Crystalia fans. Please. This is what I think every Crystalia fan Please are. say that you have an impression at a party, and then the only impression <laughs> that you do is fan of Crystalia, and then do that voice. I'm basing it off of my, uh, at the time, I think, 29-year-old ex who, sorry, honey, too old for, for Chris, but she really did want to hook up <laughs> With Chris D'Elia after going to one of his shows. Ugh. Yeah. How did that make you feel? I mean, she had she had enough taste to date me in the first place. Like I'm, my self worth is is super too- low when it comes to dating. Oh, I thought you were gonna say too high. No, 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 God, no. I I about kicked my coverage in just about every relationship I've been in. Well, yes, but I mean, I thought that was because of your self confidence was too high. Wow, you've no. tricked me again. I'm so bad with figuring out whether people's confidence is real or fake, and this is this will be my downfall. The point I'm making is, if yes. I can trick you into being in a long term relationship with me, Crystalia can probably trick you into a one night stand and a sex cult, apparently. For some of them. For some of them. All right, watch that. Um, I'm also in the middle of watching the Nexium docu series on HBO, which is pretty fascinating. Um, and I'm trying to think of what the fuck else I watched that I think is like interesting viewing. Oh, and then of course, um, Ari Shafir's uh, comedy special on YouTube, Jew, is just like 
I mean, it goes along with the a lot of the conversations we have about religion on this show, but I, I think it's a masterwork in comedy. And uh, I think Ari Shafir changed the comedy special game with that special. So I highly recommend that. So uh, Jew, Ari Shafir's comedy special, The Crystalia Problem, a documentary by Kyle Anderson, also on YouTube for free. And then the Nexium um, docu-series on HBO. I forgot what the fuck that was called, but it has. Ne- I think it has Nexium in the title. It might even just be called Nexium. Uh, let me look that up right now. Um, the vow. The vow. Okay, great. Thank you. The yeah. So that's the vow, and that's all about Nexium. It's like one of these like, uh, things that you go to when you want to like just succeed more and get your life together. It's the kind of thing that I could, if I was more open to, uh, or more um what's the word i'm looking for i don't know if if i'm the type of if i was more the type of person who could get tricked into joining a cult which i am not uh and i was having an existential crisis and up late crying and googling on my computer nexium is exactly the type of place that someone like that would accidentally join um and so i'm finding that very very fascinating you could have gotten tricked by the smallville girls yeah. Oh my God. I know all the all the fucking like C level actresses that are in Nexium is wild. Um, it's all like people that you see at like sci fi conventions, and you're like, Jesus Christ, you took that script too seriously. Um, What's a worse fate? What <laughs> going to Toledo to charge eighteen bucks for an autograph, or having all of your needs taken care of in a sex cult? Dude, it's it is. God. And even being at the AVN Awards, it's so funny how every convention, no matter what like topic it covers or uh, or world it is placed in, like they're all they all have this like similar sadness. And I've been going to conventions since I was a kid, mostly like horror conventions. Um, And and it was just like such PTSD, but uh, fascinating at the same time. Like, I love that world. Um, All right. So those are my recommendations. If you want to get your learn on this week without actually reading what you know, what a blast. And uh, that is absolutely it for this week. Thank you so much, Wackos, for coming into 2023 with me. I appreciate you. Uh, Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel, Out Without a Country uh, podcast. You can also uh, follow the Instagram account, um, Without a Country podcast. And you know, tag me in articles or anything like that. Tagging is better than DMing because I'm not, I don't, I turned off like my DMs mostly. So unless you've DM me before, I can't get them. Or you can tag without a country because I do check that Instagram inbox as well. Love you so much. We'll find Shelly Miss Cabbage one day. Have a great night. Take care. Bye.